so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at amongst all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act promoted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts so that we may understand the biblical teaching about the final judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're continuing our monthly sermon series and we are looking for the second time at the affirmation in the creed that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. Last month we looked at Jesus' teaching on this subject, and today we turn to the Apostle Paul. Now the idea that there should be some kind of reckoning in human affairs is deeply embedded in our culture. Not infrequently, after a criminal trial, a solicitor will read a statement from the victim's family, expressing satisfaction that the convicted offender will spend years behind bars. Sometimes the language expresses a desire for vengeance. At other times, it's couched in the form that justice has been done for the victim, which suggests a more nuanced appreciation of what justice actually should be. And the lack of justice is sometimes very troubling. I heard a talk about the peace and reconciliation process which followed the ethnic massacres in Burundi. And the process focused on uh, retelling horrific stories about ethnic violence, including confessions from some of those who were perpetrators. It was quite interesting because some came away 
with the sense that justice had not actually been done because the perpetrators, the offenders, had not been punished. And of course, when it comes to major crimes committed by governments and or armies, the concept of the International Criminal Court, if not the practice, seems to satisfy our widespread desire for justice in national and international affairs. I imagine we all feel that the leaders of Islamic State should, in due course, be brought to justice. Now, it's evident from the passage which was read this morning that the church of Thessalonica was experiencing a difficult time. Let me remind you of verse 4. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. It seems probable that this was a local persecution, since major persecutions of the church across the Roman Empire came somewhat later. We're not told what form the persecution took. But we are told about the response of the church. Look at verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. They were growing in faith. They were not allowing the difficult circumstances to undermine their confidence in Christ, and they were increasing in love for one another. They were coming together as a Christian community in solidarity and mutual support in the face of oppression. Now, not only in the New Testament times, but today as well. Christian solidarity worldwide uh, tells us about the persecution of churches in many parts of the world. Recently, there has been a particular tactic, which is that of destroying or confiscating church buildings. And this has happened in the Sudan, in Aceh province, in Indonesia, and curiously, in Cuba. This is a real issue today. But back to the situation in Thessalonica. St. Paul reassures them that justice will be done. They will get their reward, and their persecutors will get their comeuppance. So, verse 6, God is just. And hence, verses 6 and 7, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. And the implication is that the triumph of their persecutors is temporary. God is permitting his people to suffer in order to fit them for his kingdom. And what looks currently like manifest injustice will be put right, thus vindicating God's justice. But I think if I'd been in Thessalonica, I would have asked the question, well, when? And Paul addresses this in the second half of verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. St. Paul here is reverting to the teaching in his previous letter about the coming of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17, which we looked at in January. The parousia, the coming of the Lord, 
is now described as an unveiling. The Lord Jesus will be revealed, personal, visible, and glorious. And he'll be accompanied by blazing fire and powerful angels. The fire, of course, symbolizing God's presence and holiness, and the angels, his powerful agents in the destruction of evil. Of course, the reality of the second coming will completely transcend that imagery. It will be an event of awe-inspiring and cosmic splendor. So on whom does the judgment fall? Look with me in verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I think the idea here is willful rejection, not simple ignorance. Those who have heard and understood the good news of Jesus Christ and have, in effect, said, no thanks. And moreover, in the particular circumstances of the Thessalonian church, have turned their rejection into active hostility. I suspect there is a pattern here. Those who reject Christian faith are not always able to adopt the tolerant, liberal stance of letting Christians do their own thing. In the Roman Empire, as in North Korea today, the church is identified as a threat to the prevailing ideology. Not long ago, a non-Christian colleague in Oxford told me that the ferocity of the attacks by the new atheists on Christianity really surprised him. Why should they care, he said. The point is that the refusal to obey Christ is not always apathetic. And what will be the punishment of those who have willfully rejected Christ? Let me read you again verse 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Commentators note that the Greek here is literally eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And the implication is that separation from God and destruction are linked. A single destiny of being destroyed by being excluded from God's presence. John Stott comments on this verse. The horror of this end in the tragedy is the tragedy which is inherent in it. Namely that human beings made by God, like God, and for God should spend eternity without God, irrevocably banished from his presence. The implication is that their humanity will shrivel, shrink, and be destroyed as they are cut off from his life-giving spirit. Now, we're going to return to the subject of judgment and hell in a later sermon. But at the very least, this must surely include being shut out from the presence of the Lord. I hope you'll permit me at this point a digression, because this is something which puzzles me. 
This passage should reassure us that the evils we see in our world will not escape a day of reckoning. And if we care about justice, and we should, that's very good news. But I think it leaves another question unanswered. Earlier this week, my wife and I were reading, having our daily Bible readings from the prophetic book of Nahum in the Old Testament, which dates from about the 7th century B.C. The Assyrian Empire of the day was the equivalent of Islamic State. It was notoriously bloodthirsty and immensely cruel to peoples who were unfortunate to lie in its path as it rampaged across the Middle East. And Nahum's prophecy is that the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, would be sacked and its power destroyed as God's judgment. That happened in 612 BC, and Nineveh was never rebuilt. So the question is, are there equivalent judgments on evil in our world now? And I think there is a big contrast here between the Old Testament where temporal judgments of this kind are integral to the history of God's people, and the New Testament, where, apart from Jesus' prediction of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, interim judgments do not feature. St. Paul does not predict the demise of the Roman Empire as judgment for its paganism and its brutality. I think we have to be very cautious about suggestions that God's judgment is falling or even has fallen on some evil group or nation in our times. But we can be sure that judgment will fall at the end of time, and I think we should be content with that. Now back to Thessalonica. As we noted in last month's sermon on Jesus' teaching in the parables of the talents and the sheep and the goats, judgment will also be part of the experience of the people of God. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So what does St. Paul say in his letter to Thessalonica? What does he say about the destiny of Christian believers? Look again at verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, he's boasted about their perseverance and their faith. And then he says in verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, the apostle notes that he boasts about the perseverance and faith of the church in Thessalonica, and then cites this evidence for his conclusion that they will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, it's a mistake to read this as saying it's that their good deeds have in some way qualified them for their part in Christ's kingdom. That would be totally contrary to the apostles teaching elsewhere in the epistles and indeed a proper reading of this section of the letter. 
Look again at the second half of verse 10. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. The focus is on faith. Those who believe the message, Paul had brought them, in contrast to those in verse 8 who had willfully rejected it. The perseverance and faith of the recipients of the letter is evidence that they are to be counted as true followers of Christ. That said, they are also to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Their faithfulness and obedience to Christ in the face of persecution will not go unnoticed. They will be acknowledged as good and faithful servants. So what is the destiny of those counted worthy of the kingdom of God? Implicit in verse 10 is the idea that they will be included in Christ, not separation or exclusion. Going back to 1 Thessalonians again, so we will be with the Lord forever. We will be among his people as he returns to establish his rule over a new earth. We will become what we were always intended to be, made by God in his image for relationship with God and so sharing his glory. So how should we as Christians live now in the light of the final judgment? First, we do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid. Remember St. Paul's resounding affirmation in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Put it this way. There will be no score sheet of sins and virtuous acts with the judgment depending on a positive balance. If we are in Christ, by faith citizens of his kingdom, then we need to take hold of Jeremiah 31, where the Lord declares, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. But secondly, I think it's instructive to read St. Paul's prayer for the church in this passage. Look again at verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. There's no suggestion here that it all depends on our efforts to live better lives. The initiative, it says, lies with God. God may make you worthy of his calling. And it is his power that enables us to live good lives. Harnessing our desire for goodness to bring about every act prompted by faith. The point is very simple. We need to live good lives and to trust God to enable us to do so. And central to that enabling is the role of his Holy Spirit, allowing the Spirit to dwell in us. In my preparation of these last two sermons on judgment, something has really surprised me. And that is the strong New Testament emphasis on good works being evaluated. 
is by no means an exclusive focus on our sinfulness. Important though it is, of course, to tackle our sinfulness and our sins, not least as part of our Lenten discipline. But I think what these passages suggest is that we need much greater intentionality about doing good works. Every act prompted by faith. That, of course, can take many forms. It can mean giving time to serve in the church or the community. It can mean supporting folk we know who are going through difficult times, health issues, family breakdown, loneliness, depression, to name but a few. It's very easy to become lazy, enjoying our comfortable lives and our leisure. And I speak here from personal experience. Lent, I think, would be a good time to ask the Holy Spirit to identify good works that are waiting for our action and for his power to get up and do them. And why is this important? Look again at verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when Christians live a life worthy of Christ's calling, a good life characterized by good deeds, then Jesus himself is seen and glorified in them. In him, they are seen in their true humanity, in the image of God, like Jesus in his incarnation. And we don't have to wait for Jesus' return. Our lives now should reflect what we will be then. There could be no better testimony to Jesus Christ than lives lived in obedience to him. Let's pray. Stir up, O Lord, the wills of your faithful people, that richly bearing the fruit of good works, they may by you be richly rewarded. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.